Hello and welcome to episode 275 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is back to another of our themes. The reality of people's lives being so different to the perception of them that we sometimes have. This was the case even before social media, of course, although social media amplifies everything for most of us. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That is Ruth Hayes, Kitty Hall, Flaming June, Sean Bailey and Janine Cox. Thank you all so much for your support. To join us, just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime and if you take annual membership for as little as £17 a year, I'll happily pop in the post a signed copy of my book about serial killer Angus Sinclair. If you haven't heard of it, it's been up there jostling with Richard Osman at the top of the charts for the last 18 months or so. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? I know that I feel I sometimes have to give myself permission to watch football, go sailing, or maybe just watch a film with my family. So this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does, and therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. One friend of mine in particular always struggled with confidence due to her selfish parents always putting her down. Therapy changed her whole view on life and allowed her to put her past behind her and it was life-changing. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and UK True Crime listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash truecrime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts was Michael Jackson with I Can't Stop Loving You. Top dancer, Rick Astley, was it three with Never Gonna Give You Up. In the US, it was those tax-loving boys from U2 with I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And the top-selling single in Australia this year, it was a return to hard rock with Slipknot. Oh, sorry, I can't read my own writing. It was Kylie doing the locomotion. In the news this month, Dirty Dancing was released in cinemas. In UK politics, Shine retiring David Owen resigned as leader of the Social Democrats after its members voted to merge with the Liberals. Ben Johnson of Canada took gold at the Athletics World Champs, completing the 100 metres in a startling world record of 9.83 seconds. Three days later, he was stripped of the title, which went to Carl Lewis. Now, I'm not casting any aspersions, but if you read up about Lewis and drugs tests, well, let's just say like this podcast, Perception and Reality, not everything is always quite as it seems. 
and in UK true crime news, this year saw the Hungerford Massacre, when the killer murdered 16 people with an assault rifle before taking his own life. Did you guess the month and year? It was August in 1987. Today's story comes from Paisley in Scotland, a town to the southwest of Glasgow. Andrew Hunter grew up in Paisley and he had a tough start. His mum died just three weeks after he was born and as his dad showed no interest in bringing him up on his own, he was raised by an aunt in Paisley. Looking for some form of family and belonging, Andrew joined the Salvation Army where he eventually met his future wife Christine who was also involved. Christine was 11 years older than Andrew and mothered him to an extent supporting him in his ambitions to become a social worker. They soon married and had a son, and in 1977, the Salvation Army sent 26-year-old Andrew to do voluntary work at their citadel in Dundee. At first, Christine remained in Glasgow, but when her husband found employment as a social worker at a Dundee children's home, she joined him and they moved into a house in Broughty Ferry, near Dundee. The voluntary work carried out by Andrew at the Salvation Army soon paid off and he secured a job in a children's home encouraged by Christine whilst he studied for a qualification in social work which was the career he had chosen. As luck would have it, one of their neighbours, Linda, who lived with her partner Ian, was a social worker. Inspired to take on that sort of work after spending time as a volunteer with the Samaritans. 26-year-old Linda was very helpful, very attractive, and it wasn't long until she and Andrew started a passionate affair. Hmm, not sure why we use that expression to you. Are affairs ever tepid? Not that I'd know. Anyway, in this case, it was true. Although to you or me, Linda maybe appeared a quiet and gentle soul, her sex life with Andrew was on another level. Adventurous, passionate and very frequent. When Christine found out, she insisted that her husband should end the affair, and for a while he did see less of Linda, but it didn't last long before it restarted. Linda knew she wanted to be with Andrew despite the upset caused to her partner, and she moved out and brought a house in nearby Carnoustie, fully expecting Andrew to join her. Linda wasn't aware at the time that the situation wasn't as cut and dried for Andrew, who was still having regular sex with his wife, as well as managing to keep up another affair. Both Linda and Christine were totally unaware that Andrew was also sleeping with someone else. Andrew did eventually take the decision to move in with Linda, but he still saw a lot of his son, and it was just before Christmas 1984 when Christine dropped their now nine-year-old son at the children's home where Andrew was working, so the father and son could head off to the cinema. But afterwards, back at Christine's, there was no reply to the knocks on the door. This was strange as the car was in the driveway, the lights were on, and music was playing inside the house. In a panic, Andrew ran to the house still owned by Linda's ex-partner Ian, where he asked him to call Christine, but there was no reply. He then headed to another neighbour who kept a spare key and let himself in, unsure just what he would find. The neighbour followed behind as Andrew Hunter stopped abruptly 
he had seen his wife, Christine, hanging from the loft hatch. Depressed by the way things had turned out with her and Andrew, it seemed she had taken her own life that afternoon. Christine's death had a major effect on Andrew. Rather than being closer to Linda, he became angry and almost resented her for still being alive, it seemed. He also showed a violent streak, often striking Linda, even in public. Lots of witnesses saw one time when Andrew hit Linda when she suggested he didn't need to go to Christine's funeral. And during one of their more serious arguments, he hit Linda in the face with an umbrella and twisted her arm so brutally that she had to receive treatment at hospital. But their relationship was still characterised by the regular and passionate sex, which followed the endless run of arguments. But this wasn't enough for Andrew. At the time, there was a thriving street sex worker scene in Dundee, and he knew almost all of them. He was also sleeping with a young, vulnerable drug addict he'd met through work. And finally, bisexual Andrew was also having an affair with a man he had met in a local sauna in Paisley rather than Rochdale. I know that like me, you like the detail, so let me reveal that this man was a one-legged pensioner. But with all that was going on in their lives, Andrew and Linda planned to get married on the 1st of November 1986. But that February, as the violence got worse, Andrew himself got help for his depression and Linda was relying on sleeping tablets to sleep. One night she accidentally overdosed and ended up spending a week in hospital. But despite this, the wedding still went ahead. If you look at the photos, they look like a young couple with a wonderful future ahead, like Katie Price and her current boyfriend. Linda is beautiful and Andrew is in full Highland dress and looking very handsome and dapper. They honeymooned at an expensive castle in Scotland and then headed over to Israel. And for a while, marriage seemed to have a positive effect on their relationship. But Andrew couldn't stop himself. He was soon having sex again with his drug addict ex-client and as many of Dundee's sex workers as possible. And then one day, 30-year-old Linda was so happy to break the news to Andrew that she was pregnant with the baby they'd both always wanted. Again, at first, Andrew seemed excited but it didn't last, and he soon went back to his old ways and was increasingly unpleasant to Linda, who felt he almost resented their baby. It was made worse for Andrew, as Linda suffered terrible morning sickness and no longer wanted sex, which was so important to him. She confided in her sister Sandra, telling her what a strain it was living with Andrew and his terrible moods and his increasing violence towards her. Sandra, seeing how upset Linda was, told her she would visit her the following week on the 21st of August 1987. But when she arrived, Andrew said that Linda wasn't there as she'd headed off to her parents' house with her constant companion, her dog Shep. Sandra found this very odd to say the least, but Andrew sat with her in the garden in the sun and then took her for tea at a local hotel and Andrew seemed the same as ever. It was very charming towards Sandra. But by 7pm when Sandra left to head home, there was still no sign of her sister, which was most unlike her. Andrew didn't seem concerned, 
but when she hadn't returned home the following evening and he found that she wasn't at her parents' house, he did start to get worried and called the police to report his wife missing. He told detectives she'd been suffering from severe morning sickness and had told Andrew that along with her dog Shep, she was going to visit her parents in Glenrothes in Fife. But within 24 hours of the investigation starting, Linda's white Vauxhall car was found in Manchester. It had been there since the day she was due to meet Sandra, parked on the double yellow line, and had been broken into. Detectives were puzzled. Why would Linda have travelled to Manchester? She had no known contacts there, and was about to have her first baby with her husband. Talking of the husband, as always, he was fully looked at as they are often so responsible for their missing partner. And detectives found it strange how Andrew appeared totally disinterested in the disappearance of his wife and unborn child. But Andrew put this down to his job, where he was trained not to show any emotion. And Andrew had a rock-solid alibi. He'd been at work on the day when Linda had gone to Manchester. Then he went on a works night out when he was taken and dropped off by a colleague. The next day he'd gone to Dundee to buy a pair of trainers for his son before going to a meeting with his boss. But the information that Sandra had given them about Andrew and his relationship with her sister certainly put him as a suspect if any harm had come to Linda. Was it possible that there was still a window of opportunity in his alibi? It was a tight-run thing, but they reckoned he could still have killed Linda before dropping her car in Manchester and then returning to buy the trainers in Dundee. But they kept this information from Andrew. They needed more. Do you remember the reconstruction of this story on that favourite programme of the true crime enthusiast, Crime Watch? Back before Crime Watch became weird, with all the odd camera angles and presenters doing strange stuff, that is. Anyway, this case was actually the first from Scotland to be highlighted on that programme. And it turned into an exceptionally good move as the incident room was flooded with information following the appeal. And much of it firmly pointed the finger at Andrew Hunter. One witness called in to say she remembered on the afternoon that Linda went missing, a man and a woman who appeared to be distressed in a car close to Fernie Castle. And detectives were certain this was Andrew Hunter and Linda. Unfortunately on this programme there was some Sad news for all of us dog lovers. A dog matching Shep's description had been found wandering about in woods not far in Ladybank and had been put down as a stray. It was Linda's dog Shep and I know, me too, I know you were wondering. By now detectives were convinced that Andrew had murdered Linda but there was still no proverbial smoking gun that key piece of information needed to convict. And then came the break they needed. The police investigation was reinvigorated when Linda's decomposed body was found in February 1998 in Melville Lowerwood Ladybank, just to the southwest of Glasgow, near where Shep had been found. Her body was found by a dog walker. Of course, it was a dog walker. She'd been strangled with the lead from her beloved... Cross Collie Shep, 
and when she was found, the lead was still around her neck. And Shep's collar was then found at Andrew Hunter's home. Detectives knew that Linda adored this dog and she would never let him go anywhere without his collar as she was so terrified of losing him. So they knew that Hunter had been there when Linda was murdered. And it seemed that Shep, the dog so loved by Linda in life, could be responsible for helping find the man who had taken her life. When police swooped to arrest Hunter, he was spending time with his heroin-addicted young girlfriend. Like many of those who spent time with Hunter, things didn't end well for her, as just a day later, she was found dead following a heroin overdose. Hunter was arrested, charged and faced trial. The Crown's case was gleefully picked up by all the UK papers. Hunter had strangled Linda and dumped her body in nearby woods, all the while knowing that later that day he was meeting her sister Sandra. What sort of a man could calmly drink tea with the sister of the woman he'd just strangled with her own dog's lead? After Sandra had gone, he had indeed gone out of his work colleagues for the evening, but he didn't go to bed on his return. In his own mind believing he'd thought of everything, he donned a blonde wig before driving south to Manchester and dumping Linda's car in the place where he knew it would be found. He then took the train home, heading straight out to buy trainers in Dundee, ensuring he kept the receipt showing the date and time they were bought of 1.06pm. He thought that would be enough to substantiate his alibi. Afterwards, no doubt delighted with the success of the plan, he popped for a haircut before returning to work. Detectives believed the reality was on the day that Linda Hunter had died. At around 10.45am, she and Andrew had driven off in her Vauxhall Cavalier, heading just an hour away from home to where Linda's parents lived in Glenrothes. But Andrew Hunter pulled off the road, en route, and drove to a quiet spot where the couple argued before Hunter hit Linda before reaching for Shep's dog lead which was lying on the back seat. He then strangled his wife in the car. Soon after he pulled over and dumped Shep in a remote location. He then parked the car a few miles from home and caught the bus to Dundee where he handed in some social work coursework before going home to meet Sandra and go to the works outing before leaving at about midnight for Manchester and the spot in the centre where Linda's car was found just by Piccadilly Station. At his trial, a Dundee sex worker told the High Court that after a sex session with Hunter at his home, he told her that his wife was dead. And the lead QC used the key evidence from Shep, telling Hunter, if the collar was found in your house subsequently, there is only one remaining conclusion to be drawn, and that is that you were present with your wife in the car. And if you are present in the car, you are exclusively responsible for your wife's death. For once, Hunter had no answer to this. 37-year-old Andrew Hunter was found guilty of murdering his wife by a majority on August 2nd, 1988. And for this crime, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. The judge told him, you are an evil man of exceptional depravity. But Hunter wasn't destined to spend his life in prison. Just five years later, at 42, 
On the 19th of July 1993, he died of a heart attack in Perth Prison. But the story doesn't end there. There has been much speculation that there were other victims. Did his wife Christine really hang herself? When Hunter left her for Linda, he was well aware that Linda wanted marriage and children and it could take years to obtain a divorce from Christine who didn't want a divorce. It was very convenient for the authorities to assume suicide and you can imagine there wasn't too much further investigation into what looked a very straightforward case of someone taking their own life. But Christine had incredibly strong religious beliefs and taking her own life was against these. So to do this was a massive thing for her. But was Hunter responsible? It reminds me of the recent case of Ian Stewart convicting of murdering author Helen Bailey. Remember that case? Following his conviction for Helen's murder, police reinvestigated the death of his first wife, Diane, who died of a seizure. And that was pretty much just accepted. But now he has just recently been convicted of murdering Diane. And one of the young heroin addicts, I'm so sorry I don't know her name, the ex-client of Hunter, he was sleeping with who died a day after Linda's body was found. Hunter wasn't under arrest at the time and I've heard it suggested that she may have taken a deliberate overdose through guilt after she may have suggested that Hunter bump off his wife when he continually moaned about her. But others have suggested that maybe Hunter gave her the fatal heroin dose as he was scared of what she may tell the police. So that's two murders he may have been responsible for. Then there is a case I covered in my book, Gone Fishing, about Scottish serial killer Angus Sinclair. The Templeton Woods murders. Two murders that shook Dundee. The body of 20-year-old Elizabeth McCabe was discovered in Templeton Woods on the outskirts of Dundee in 1980, less than 200 metres from where 18-year-old Carol Lannan was found almost a year before. It was in July 2005 that former taxi driver Vincent Simpson, who was first interviewed by police in March 1980, appeared at Dundee's Sheriff Court, accused of killing Carol, but he walked free from the High Court after the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Was Hunter the murderer? He was linked to Carol's murder when a description of her killer showed a striking resemblance to Hunter. Late twenties, slim, pale, with sideburns and moustache, seen picking her up in a red car. Police later released a photo fit, which if you look at it today, looks very much like Hunter, who varied his appearance between a full beard and a, a big heavy moustache. One journalist who spent lots of time looking at this case, Alexander McGregor, is certain that Hunter killed Carol. In a TV interview, he was told by the mum of a sex worker who knew Hunter that they'd met while he was a social worker at a children's home. He said, Carol Lanham was a young sex worker and I think it's possible that he met her in the course of his duties. And in fact, he bore an uncanny resemblance to the photo fit of the man the police were looking for. To me, the fact he matched the description 
and we already know his killing method was strangulation and dumping the body in the woods, combined with his knowledge of Dundee sex workers, makes him a very strong suspect. Don't you? He was never interviewed in connection with her death, but was he responsible? And I've spoken of three other potential victims, but were there more? So what do you make of what we've heard today? Andrew Hunter was a man that we've heard about today who was able to kill his pregnant wife and his unborn child. If you can do that, is there anything you're not capable of doing? It's hard to believe that Linda was his only victim, isn't it? But that's for another podcast. For us today, we can just feel tremendous sympathy for all of those who came into contact with him and their families, but especially Christine and Linda. Both women felt they had found the man they could be with for the rest of their lives, and yet instead, he was directly responsible for both of their deaths. I also, of course, feel for his son, who is now a grown-up. I wonder how he feels when he looks back on the events that took place when he was just a young boy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please just head to the Facebook group where there are over 76,000 of us ready to welcome you. Do come and join us. It's always interesting. And to help me produce this free weekly podcast every single Tuesday, please consider joining me at Patreon and joining my community there. For a couple of quid a month, you can access bonus episodes and other exclusive content. If you join this month on an annual package for as little as £17 per year, I'll throw in a free signed copy of my book about serial killer Angus Sinclair. What is there not to like? Well, that's all for me for another week. Until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio for now.